in the spring, when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. To understand Psalm 51, we need to appreciate that the David we encounter here was not the David we meet as the shepherd boy. It's not the David that slew Goliath. It's not the David that spared the life of Saul the many times that he could have taken it. This is a different David. So what went wrong? David had been walking with God for a long time. David had everything. He lacked for nothing. He was king. After all, there was nothing that he couldn't have. Maybe complacency had set in. Maybe he'd ceased to depend on God for everything. Maybe the perks of kingship were beginning to blind him. Maybe power had gone to his head. This David was not the David we've been following all the way through 1 and 2 Samuel. To be clear, if he had been walking with God, these events that we, uh, we know about would not have unfolded. In the spring, when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. I mean, David was the warrior king. You'll remember that chant. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. So he should have been out there. He should have been with his men. He should have been leading the fighting. I don't know why he wasn't. Maybe he'd got a box set he wanted to watch. We don't know. But David wasn't where he should have been. And then as the story unfolds, you you read that one evening, uh, David arose from his couch. So he'd been really kicking back. He'd been in his bed all afternoon. And he thinks, well, it's about time I got up and wandered around and had a look. And so he walks out on his roof and he sees Bathsheba. And let's be clear, Bathsheba was not bathing on her roof. This was David on his roof. The details are a bit obscure, but we know that Bathsheba wasn't being promiscuous. She wasn't trying to seduce David in any way, as some people think that she was. Bathsheba was merely taking what the Jewish people call a mikvah, and that's a ritual bath. After a period of menstruation, Jewish women have a mikvah, so it's a total immersion, and then they come back out, and that's what, uh, what Bathsheba was doing. So David saw her somehow in her mikvah. The neighbours wouldn't have been able to see her, but David was. <clears throat> and I can tell you that, that uh, David's city in Jerusalem is just like that. Um, we went uh, in February to, uh, to Israel, and uh, we went to see David's city, the ruins of David's city. And it's fascinating, because as you're up there high, you're really looking down steeply on all the old Jebusite city that David conquered. And so you could see how David could easily have just seen uh, inside Jeth- uh, Bathsheba's property. Now, obviously, we're not responsible for what comes before our eyes, but we are responsible for what we do with that. David's gaze lingered. David's gaze turned to lust. David's lust turned to adultery and ultimately to murder. So, according to Jesus, David had already committed adultery when he was looking lustfully. Uh, on Bathsheba. In the spring, when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. There is always a temptation, I guess, to, to ease back in the Christian life. And the Christian life, we were constantly rowing. We can never stand still. It's not that rowing is hard or difficult necessarily, but we always have to keep going. We always have to maintain the Christian life. We can't think we've ever achieved it. We've done it. We've reached the target. We've reached the goal. That's it. There's no more to do. And so it's easy just to stop rowing. 
I haven't got time to meet with God today. I've gone up a bit late. I'll, I'll have a quiet time uh, when I get back from work. Uh, I've never seen any orchestra tune up after they've finished the performance. I don't think I'll go to church today. It's a really lovely day. Uh, there's other things that I need to do. Uh, you know what? I'd rather not go to the life group tonight. I've just got so much on, and uh, it's rather cold and wet out there, and, and Ronnie and Catherine's home. Uh, it's a little bit cold, so we'll not, we'll not go there. You see, we need God, and we need each other. The, the two are both needs that we have. Yeah, life is busy these days, but in some respects it's always been busy. Um, back in the early part of the 20th century, people used to work, most people, six days a week. And yet there are a lot more distractions. There are a lot more pressures in the 21st century, I accept that. But at the end of the day, we always make time for things that are important to us. In the spring, when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. It wasn't as though God didn't warn David, because the first thing David did when he saw Bathsheba, he sent a messenger. He said, go and find out who, that, um, who my neighbor is. I don't think I've met her, but it'd be nice to, to be introduced to her and find out who she is. And so the messenger comes back, and uh, I don't know quite how the messenger said this, but it was very clear. He said, oh, that's Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam. She's Uriah the Hittite's wife. You know, people you know. You know Uriah, one of your soldiers out there now fighting for you. One of your 37 mighty men in your SAS squad. In other words, God was saying through this message, she belongs to someone else. She's spoken for, hands off. But nevertheless, David jumps to the red traffic light and many would say, with justification, that Bathsheba was raped. So Bathsheba falls pregnant, and then David adds sin on top of sin. Plan A was to get Uriah home so he could sleep with his wife, and then send him back, and then that problem solved. When that failed, David arranged the death of Uriah, and so Uriah himself died at David's behest. It was a sordid and sorry state of affairs. But we can look at this and think, well, in the sovereignty of God, uh, all this pain could have been avoided, couldn't it? If God had maybe just not let Bathsheba fall pregnant, why did she have to fall pregnant? Or maybe if God had just weakened Uriah's resolve and made him, yeah, okay, I'll sleep no more wife before I go back to the, to the conflict. David would have been off the hook and everything will be fine, wouldn't it? No. Uh, nothing would have been fine. You see, David would still have been David. God was not going to stand aside and let David still be the same person. God was going to use this incident to change David, to restore him to the person that God wanted him to be. Remember, this is not the same David we've been following through in the books of Samuel. If I've not convinced you about David's condition, uh, let's just look at how callous David had become. David wanted to send this message to Joab, saying basically, well, put, Joab, uh, put Uriah in the front line, and then when the fighting gets bad, withdraw the men, and then, well, Uriah's going to die. And so he wanted to send that message to Joab. So rather than sending a messenger, David actually wrote this message, sealed it, and put it in the hands of Uriah to take back to Joab. So 
Uriah was holding his own death warrant in his hands as he went back to the fighting. And Uriah would have, I think, treated that message with respect. He'd been thinking, this is from David, my king. Maybe this is orders to uh, how to direct the battle. But that was how callous he'd become. And secondly, when Joab sends the message back, okay, Uriah's dead. Uh, There was also other people that died along with Uriah. It wasn't just Uriah. Uh, David says basically to the messenger, say, Levi, that's life. Tell Joab not to let this upset him. Can you see how callous David had become over this time? So, consider this. Bathsheba had just finished her menstrual cycle when David called her. And if you talk to any good, devout Roman Catholic, they will tell you that a woman's most fertile period is some 14 days after the conclusion of her menstrual cycle. Personally, I can see the hand of God in that. Personally, I can see God making her fall pregnant because by this account, she shouldn't have been. So to be clear, this was not about David's sin with Bathsheba. This whole issue was about David's fractured relationship with God. This was a man that had written in Psalm 19, as as Oz uh, brought to us. These words, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. It's more precious than gold, uh, more than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, than honey on the honeycomb. By then is your servant warned, and in keeping of them is great reward. Keep your servant from willful sins, they may not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of this great, of great transgression. Psalm 36, uh, David wrote, Concerning the wicked, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They flatter themselves too much to detect their own sin. Even on their beds, even on their beds, they plot evil. They commit themselves a sinful course and have rejected, or have not rejected what is wrong. Can you see how far David had fallen from those heady days of writing those psalms of that close walk that he had with God? So about a year on, A year on, uh, God, this time, God sent, and God sent Nathan the prophet. It's it's reassuring to me that God just didn't sit back and say, well, David's fallen, it's not my responsibility, he's got to come to me. And I wonder how many relationships we, we know about that are broken, because it's, well, they've got to say sorry to me. They're the ones that have broken my trust, broken my love for them. But God's not like that, and that's one of the amazing things about God. Remember, right at the very beginning, when Adam fell, God said, Adam, where are you? God seeks us out. And so Nathan goes along as a petitioner. Don't forget, uh, David is the king judge, he's the chief judge. And Nathan doesn't go along just with a a story. Uh, Nathan goes along with a case that he wants to bring before David. And so he says, David, there's uh, this case I want to bring for your attention. There's the rich man... And he's got loads of herds, loads of flocks, lots of money. And there was this other guy, uh, his neighbor. Now, he, in contrast, was a very poor man. He'd only got one lamb, and he and his family were very close together. This one lamb meant a lot to them. And do you know what happened? The rich man had a friend come, and rather than take one of his own lambs to sacrifice, he took this poor man's lamb and sacrificed that. And can you see what a perfect illustration that would have been for David? David the shepherd talking about sheep and this this poor man. 
I want a perfect illustration. And then it says, David's anger burned within him. And at that point, when David said, that man shall surely die, it was at that point Nathan came along and said, you are the man. You are the man. And then Nathan delivers God's word. God says, I've given you everything you have. I've blessed you beyond measure. I would have given you even more. Of course, David will be forgiven, but death and calamity would ensue as punishment on his house. And the child uh, would be taken away from David. So when did David write this psalm, Psalm 51? Well, as you read in in, uh, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12... David, when he heard that news from Nathan, had spent seven days in prayer and fasting and weeping, laying prostrate on the ground at night, face down in sackcloth, pleading for God to have mercy. And for me, I think it was at that time, those seven nights where David was laying prostrate on the ground, that Psalm 51 was composed, that Psalm 51 came to him out of that grief, out of that pain. So let's finally, let's turn uh, to this psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So David looked at the train wreck of his life, and he pleads to the one who knows has unfailing love and compassion. You see, his love for God had failed, But David knew that God's love for him hadn't failed. God's love never fails, and David knew that. So David brings three words to outline his need. The first word that he brings to God is the word transgression. And here what David is is saying is that he had transgressed and broken God's laws. David knew that adultery was wrong. It hadn't slipped his mind. David knew that murder was wrong. Again, that hadn't slipped his mind. And so David is aware that he's broken God's law. Did you know that God has a library? Revelation 20, verse 12, says this, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Also another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they'd done. And so David, knowing about God's books, it's in the Old Testament as well, asked God to blot out this transgression, to wipe it away, uh, to erase it, to remove it. But David didn't just want the record of it being wiped away. And, you know, most people were just pleased with it being done away with. I know that when you get penalty points on your licence, the relief after three years, they're gone. The record is clean. My license is clean again. I'm going to send it off and get another paper one. Yeah, it was a long time ago. But But that relief was there. You've got a clean license again. And I was happy at that. But David wasn't just going to ask God to wipe away the record of his sin. David wanted more than that. David knew that he needed more than that. He needed changing himself. David wanted more. And so he says, wash away my iniquity. David realised that suddenly after all those actions when he he saw things from God's perspective he knew and he realised that he felt dirty, he felt sinful because iniquity means something that is twisted, something which is perverted and he had twisted 
and he had perverted marriage and sex through his actions. And so David looks upon his actions and he wants a deep, deep down washing. He wants his behavior and his desires to be washed clean. He wants to be changed himself. And thirdly, David says, cleanse me from my sins. And so David understood that sin had separated him from God. All those years, there had been that separation. So he wanted spiritual cleansing. He wanted that relationship with God to be restored. So he came to God for that cleansing. Let's continue. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. You know, when anyone gets to that position of calling out for mercy from God, you know they've reached the point where all excuses have sinned. Self-justification has ended and it is simply have mercy on me. David doesn't try and excuse himself like you remember uh, Saul did. David doesn't say, I'm a man, I've got my needs, um, and I'm king. I can have what I like. And have you, Did you see Bathsheba? Oh, she was a stunner. Well, Uriah, well, his parents were just foreign converts. I mean, anyway. No, David owns his guilt. There's no excuses presented before God. He takes ownership of it. And we might take objection to David saying, against you only have I sinned. And certainly the woke generation would take objection to it. Uh, they'd scream, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about the baby? Interestingly, they might have no problem with uh, Bathsheba having the baby aborted. But in this instance, they would take great offence. And so the commentators normally say, well, when you compare what God had done, uh, sinned against, Dave, uh, against God then Bathsheba and Uriah, it kind of pales a bit. But I don't actually think that's necessarily the full picture. You see, we are all created in God's image. And when we harm one another, when we hurt one another, in this case, when we kill, when David killed someone else, we are attacking and harming the image of God in which we've all been created. So when Uriah had David killed, he was killing a man in God's image. Therefore, all sin is against God himself. Continue. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. In the hidden parts, you will make me know wisdom. David understood that he was a sinner long before he'd ever sinned. He understood that. He knew that. He was not saying, oh, well, my mother was an immoral woman. Um, he was highlighting the state of all mankind, that we're all born sinful, we're all born in need. And you learn that really when you become parents. Sorry, Esther, I'm going to have to uh, mention that. But when you, have a, when you have children, you know that you're never going to have to sit down with them and say, OK, um, Penny, there's no Penny here, is there? Um, what we're going to do today, I'm going to teach you about deception and lying. Because actually, it's quite a useful tool and can get you out of trouble. You don't need to do that with children. They, they know, they know that, that, that um, you can see the, the sin in them. But David is also saying, being born sinful is no excuse before God. You can't say to God, well, I can't help it. I'm a sinner. You know I'm a sinner. 
God, he says, still desires truth in the inward parts. Regardless of my condition, God does never turn a blind eye to sin. He has provided a way to deal with sin, and he never turns a blind eye to it. And so David talks about the hidden part, the hidden part that no one else sees but God sees. And it's right there in the innermost being that God wants to work on us. If we surrender that part to him, then we can uh, let him make that part holy. Then everything will flow from that. David would have found himself with the wisdom that God was, was promising. And David would have found himself, had he been walking with God, not asking God to, to stop him at the point of adultery, but asking God to stop him at the point of looking and lust. The old saying goes, look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves. And that's true in finances and it's true also in our walk with God. If we keep short records with God, if we keep close with God, then looking after the small things means we don't end up in the big things. Keep tight, keep close to God. Continue. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. So David comes to God for cleansing. He doesn't go to a priest, he goes to God himself. And hyssop is quite an interesting thing to follow through in the Bible. Um, it has minor health properties, but that's not really, I don't think, why God uh, mentions it. It's more a motif. And the first time that we encounter hyssop in the Bible is found in the, the first story of salvation, and that's down in Egypt. And so you'll remember when the angel of death was going to pass over Egypt, um, the Hebrews had to put blood on the doorposts of their door so the angel of death would pass over them and would not uh, kill their firstborn son. And so they dipped, uh, they had a, uh, an unblemished lamb, they dipped hyssop in that, and they went to the outside doorpost and splashed it on the doorpost and splashed it on the lintel. Interesting. And then, of course, we pick up in uh, Leviticus, again, hyssop being used. It's used for the cleansing of lepers and other diseases. So it's used for salvation. It's used for cleansing. And where's the last place we encounter hyssop in the Bible? Uh, it's actually in John's Gospel, chapter 29, uh, verse 29. You'll remember when Jesus is on the cross, he says, I thirst. And so a stalk of hyssop was used, a sponge was put on it, it was dipped in wine vinegar. This isn't the, the, the wine and myrrh that was offered to Jesus at the beginning. It was dipped in that, and it was offered up to Jesus on a stem of hyssop. And so we see right there where the act of ultimate salvation was taking place, and we find there hyssop again, where the ultimate act of salvation and cleansing was taking place, there again, through the blood, um, we see hyssop. So it's not a lamb that was sacrificed, it's the lamb, the lamb of God. And the ark of salvation is complete, shown by hyssop. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence, or take thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. In verse 11, David declares two things that he is most terrified about. 
First of all, being cast out of God's presence. And he will have in his mind uh, Cain being cast out of God's presence after he'd slain Abel. You'll remember that that was the punishment. Uh, Cain was cast out from God's presence. And that thought would have terrified David. The second thing that filled him uh, with fear was this. He said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Can you remember anyone that David would have witnessed with the Holy Spirit being taken away from him? Of course, it's Saul. And David would have remembered when God took his spirit away from Saul, just how devastated Saul was. And so David saw that, and that was a a thing that he was thinking, I do not want to enter into that position. So commentators are quick to say, ah, but but David could... uh, could have the Holy Spirit taken from him, but we as believers can't. I, I wouldn't quibble with that. But we can grieve the Holy Spirit within us. We can quench the Holy Spirit within us. And surely our greatest motivation, my greatest motivation for wanting to walk with God is not to disappoint him, um, not to upset Father. And so I try to live my day-to-day life. So I don't want to upset him with things I see, with things I do, with things I say. I'm not saying I always get there, but that's how I try and live my day-to-day life. So forgiven, David then asked for three things to help him walk close with God. A pure and clear or clean heart. David had corrupted his heart, and so he needed God to fashion a new one within him. But he knew that this heart would need to be kept clean. And so therefore he asked for two other things. A steadfast spirit. Uh, David had lost his steadfast spirit. He says, renew the one within me when he fell into adultery with Bathsheba. So he needed the ability again to stand firm, constant, to be immovable, to be unshakable. That tells you, if anything does, that the Christian life is not an easy life. And then he wants a willing spirit. Um, So he wants that, that willingness to follow God freely on his own. So one thing that desperately wanted, uh, David desperately wanted back was the joy that he had with the Lord. Um, Joy born out of salvation. Um, Have we lost your joy? It doesn't have to be because of sin in your life, but the fault is almost certainly with us. If our joy is gone, uh, it's because of us, not because of God. And having come to repentance, David was very keen to get back his joy. And then he says... I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. And you just see how gospel-orientated this psalm is. Here David is talking about evangelism. So he's got forgiveness, and the next thing he wants to do is to go out and share that message. Uh, But he's talking more than, than just telling people. He's talking about teaching people, about making disciples. And it's always a challenge to me. Jesus did not say, go into all the world and get them to make decisions for me. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. It's a whole different thing. David continues, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. My lips, O Lord, are open, and my mouth shall declare your praise. For a year, David had fended off guilt. He was thinking to himself, well, I didn't actually kill Uriah myself. Um, He'd lost the spirit of praise for a whole year. There was that emptiness and coldness there, going through the motions. But now he'd repented. He'd saw God's pardoning mercy. 
grace and deliverance, praise and thanksgiving, just a natural response to that, uh, that deliverance that he had. And praise, he wanted to direct it to the attribute of God's glory. So David had been burdened with guilt for all this time. David could once again praise him. He'd not experienced joy and gladness for all those long dead months. And Matthew Henry uh, puts it like beautifully like this. He says, David's communion with God had been interrupted. During that time, it is certain he penned no psalms, his harp was out of tune, and his soul was like a tree in winter that has life only in the root. His heart was out of tune. He penned no psalms. And you know, although God doesn't need anything from us, uh, I think God missed David's praise for that year as much as David missed that praising God. Uh, God doesn't need anything from us, but I think God wanted the old David back just as much as David wanted the old David back too. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. So David knew he deserved the death penalty. That was clear from reading uh, the, old, the, 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 the Torah, the uh, Pentateuch. There was no sacrifice for deliberate sin. No sacrifice. David couldn't have gone through a concordance at the time and look at, right, where's sacrifice for deliberate sin? There isn't one. And I just think that's interesting. There is no sacrifice for deliberate sin. I'll leave it at that. I do remember encountering someone on the street in Leeds. We were handing out uh, tracks um, in Leeds, and I wore a T-shirt on the back, and it said, Torah speaks of Jesus. Now, that's because we were looking, focusing on a particular community. But this, this guy came up to me, and he was very agitated. He didn't really understand what, what Torah was or anything like that. And he was pacing around me saying, I, I suppose I could punch you, and then, then I could go and ask God for forgiveness. Um, he didn't, by the way, so I was quite, quite pleased about that. But it was still that kind of attitude, oh, God forgive me. There was no sacrifice for deliberate sin. It's interesting that, that when it comes to the, the sacrifice in the Old Testament, one thing that God rejects are sacrifices with broken bones. But here, it's the brokenness that, uh, that God wants. It's that contrition. And that's why when Nathan said to him, uh, David, you are the man, David cried out, I have sinned. And then, David, uh, then Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. Where has he put that sin away? Well, obviously, on Jesus, on the cross. So the Lord has laid on him, it says in uh, Isaiah 53, the iniquity of us all. So David's sin was put on the future work of Christ on the cross, just as our sin is put on the past work of Christ on the cross. Um, we're going to gallop on a bit now. So the last section is, may it please you to prosper Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Um, you delight in, sac in sacrifices uh, at that point. And yeah, I'm going to leave all of that and just press on because we are tight on time. If only David, I'm going to conclude with, uh, I'd follow the example of Joseph. You remember Joseph in Egypt, Potiphar's wife, grabbed hold of him and said, come to bed with me. Joseph fled. And that's uh, what, what Paul says in the New Testament as well. Flee 
If only David had followed the example of Job. Job 31, Job writes, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look on a virgin. So Job had thought ahead, made a covenant with my eyes. If anything comes into my eyes, eyes, covenant with, I'm going to turn away. I'm going to avert my eyes for you. So he'd made that covenant. And looking at Jesus himself, how did Jesus deal with temptation? In Hebrews, we're told that he was tempted in every way that we are. Jesus' temptation was different to ours. The main temptation that Jesus had to deal with um, was avoidance of that suffering path to the cross. And you'll remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was saying, is there not another way? And so Matthew chapter 4 Uh, We read in the temptations of Jesus, the last one, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdom of the world and the glory of them and said, all these things I will give you if you will just fall down and worship me. So I'll bow out. I'll leave the scene. I won't influence men anymore. You can have the whole thing. But just please, for eternity, let me know that I'm suffering there in eternity that once the Son of God worshipped me. And Jesus' response to that was, Be gone, Satan. It is written, You shall worship God, and him only shall you serve. And Luke's version of that, it concludes, When the the devil had ended his temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And when was that next opportune time? Well, that basically was Peter's confession, where Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says that that's not been revealed to you by flesh and blood. God has revealed that to you. And Peter, full of himself, when Jesus starts to talk about the way he's got to go to Jerusalem to be offered up and to die, Peter takes him to one side and says, no, 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 you've got this all wrong. That's not going to happen. And Jesus' words to Peter are, get behind me, Satan. Get out of my sight, And the way that I see Jesus dealing with temptation is twofold. Um, First of all, there's a rebuke coupled with a dismissal. Be gone. Get out of my sight. Go away. There's a rejection. Quite a a verbal rejection. That's the first thing that Jesus did. And then there's that justification for why. So, first of all, Jesus says, it is written. And we might say ourselves, The Bible says, it is written, the Bible says. So it's going to the scripture, justifying why an action is wrong. And secondly, it's looking at the perception of the origin of this temptation. And when Peter was tempting uh, uh, Jesus, Jesus said, this isn't coming from the glory of God. You're looking after man's interests, not God's interests. So when we're tempted, is this temptation going to glorify God? No, it's not. So most here aren't adulterers or murderers, but we all could be. And uh, it's not beyond people to fall. It's very, very common. We would make a mistake, I believe, uh, if we treated this psalm as all about adultery and murder. Because, no, this psalm is about all sin, all temptation, all falling. It's for every single one of us. It's about finding your way back to God when you've fallen. It's a blueprint. Uh, It's the steps that we need to go back to. And sin starts very small. 
Uh, some people think they can just allow a little bit of sin in their lives. Some people think, well, it's not too bad. Um, we can control this. It can happen at work. Uh, it can happen with a really an inappropriate compliment to someone. It can happen through an inappropriate response to a compliment. And things begin to grow and escalate. And things can end up where you really wouldn't want them to be. And so both men and women uh, need to be very cautious about this. Very, very cautious. Um, If it happens, it can end up with broken marriages, broken families, broken lives. That's where it can take us. So this psalm is about finding your way back to God. But if you've never found him, if you're in that position this morning where you don't know what I'm talking about, really, then just remember, I mentioned a book in Revelation, a second book, the book of life. And the whole point is about getting your name written in that book of life. And that's an opportunity for you this morning. So if you feel that God has been speaking to you this morning, if you want to know him, Don't leave here without talking to someone about it. There's plenty of people around you who will help you. But perhaps this morning you're here as a believer and maybe God's been talking to you. Nathan was more than a prophet. Nathan was actually a friend of David, we can tell. So maybe this morning you need a friend to talk to. You need a friend to share with. You need a friend to uh, ask you to pray. To conclude this psalm, One thing that I find amazing is that David, I don't think, could have fallen any further. He had fallen as far as he could. And yet it shows us, this psalm shows us, that no matter how deep David had fallen into sin, he hadn't fallen too deep that God couldn't reach down and pick him up and restore him. And it doesn't matter where we are this morning. We are never in a position where God can't reach down and pick us up and restore us.